welcome to another uh, podcast from the Trinity College Dublin Talks series. Uh, today's podcast is um, with Professor Shane O'Mara, who is a professor of experimental brain Shane, what research. research. So experimental brain research, which is a chair that was created specifically for Shane. Shane has a, a kind of a very wide range of interests, and I'm hoping that we'll talk about all of them today. He's written recently a book called In Praise of Walking, The New Science of How We Walk and Why It's Good for Us. But his other, his other books, a book that came out a couple of years ago, is intriguingly titled Why Torture Doesn't Work, and another book, an earlier book, A Brain for Business, A Brain for Life. Welcome, Shane, to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Shane, I'd like to talk about In Praise of Walking first, because actually I spent six months in crutches last year, so it's a kind of a I saw you. Interest <laughs> <for me. Yeah. laughs> I felt very sorry for well, you. Well, you really learn how, how important walking is. But what was, uh, what was it that prompted you to, to write this book? Um, well, as, as often happens with the best ideas, they come out of a conversation. And uh, um, my first book, uh, the one on, on uh, torture, had provoked a, a lot of interest, and I'd been approached by quite a few uh, literary agents and also uh, various publishers to pitch for other books and uh, I went to meet a, a number of people and the person who ended up as my agent Bill Hamilton uh, didn't want to talk about book pitches he just wanted to talk about ideas and what interests me and uh, I had just walked from somewhere way north of King's Cross to meet him at the Welcome Collection and uh, he said what do you like to do and I said I love to walk especially in cities and he said why don't you write a book on walking? <laughs> I said, of course I should write a book on walking. Um, and I felt like I was very dumb at that moment because it seemed totally obvious to me that I should have had the idea to do it and I didn't. But the interesting thing is that you went, then went and did it, didn't yes, you? Because a I lot did. of people have ideas and yeah. they kind of chew them around, but, but actually to sit down and have the discipline. I mean, how, how committed to walking were you? You, you, you? you like walking across cities, that's a very... Uh, interesting thing to do with a lot of kind of eye yeah. candies. And so is it I also countryside walking? Or walk, I, so walk? I think all my life I've liked to walk and I've liked to walk a lot. I, I've walked less in the countryside than I have in cities. Um, the, I think the countryside is fine. Uh, it's grand uh, and I've, I've got boots and all the rest of it at home. Um, but what I prefer is to walk during the course of everyday life. And most of us live in cities now um, and this is where most walking by definition will take place. I mean, in essence, that's the argument of your book, isn't it? That yeah. We need to build it into our, into our normal lives, that we need to do a lot of it, that we sit at our desks too much, that, that that's unnatural, and that people, I won't say don't need to go to the gym, but they'd be much better off walking first and foremost. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not down on gyms, mm. um, but what people can't mistake, uh, or can't make the mistake of thinking is that going to the gym for a half an hour or an hour after having sat around for eight or ten hours is going to make up for having sat around for eight or ten hours. Everything we know about the physiology of the body says that that's untrue. What we need to do is, is engage in lots more activity during the course of the day. That's what we're built for. We're built to walk, you know, uh, let's say 15 kilometers a day, every day from about the age of two until whatever age we die. We're, we're very, very good long distance walkers. And that's that's the natural form of movement we're. And how much for. do we walk as opposed to what we should? Be not enough. You know what we're built. To and do not this. enough mm. is the is the honest truth. So, if you look at at uh, hunter gatherers who are living what are sometimes referred to as ancestral lifestyles, the males typically walk somewhere between fifteen and seventeen kilometers a day, day in day out, um, 
females typically 13 to 15 kilometers a day, day in, day out. And their uh, coronary artery uh, health scores are astonishing. Um, they, they are great physical specimens. Uh, whereas we in the West, or in the developed world, let's say, um, we walk somewhere between 3,000 and 5,500 steps a day on average, which is about two to three or maybe four kilometers. It's kind of pathetic. Really. It's pathetic. Yeah. Uh, it really is very, very little compared to what we can do. And we can do it easily, you know, it's, it's, it's not a problem. Well, I know you have views on this, you know, about, about how cities should be designed to, to encourage this kind of walking. And, and you know, what, what are the, the, the fixes? How could we, I, I mean, I, I've, in your book you talk about the idea of um, creating walking cities, you know, cities that, that didn't have cars at all, that, that were places for people who like walking to live in it or, or maybe walking and cycling. Which yeah, so we, we have numbers on this, you know, so uh, uh, at the turn of the last century, around 1900, uh, the average London working man walked uh, about 12 miles per day uh, and there, there are data on this. Um, whereas now, as, a, as we've already said, we don't walk that kind of distance at all. And this is because we engaged in this experiment over the last 100 years since the 1920s in uh, making cities places uh, which give preference to cars over people. And you see this all over this city, that uh, coming out of Pierce Street Station, as I do every day, uh, the cars have priority, yeah. even though there are more people disgorged yeah. from the train than there are on cars. So how do we fix it? Well, we have to do what the Dutch do. Uh, we have to do what the Danes are attempting to do in Copenhagen. We have to remove cars from cities. Um, the cities of Europe in particular are not designed to pour the volume of cars into them, single occupancy cars uh, that we do. We, the, the, they are old medieval cities with narrow streets. We can make them, uh, make the cities uh, viable for cars by destroying what's interesting about the city. So Pure Street, as you know, is uh, going to be a, uh, a piece of a motorway which was going to be run down all the way down the, the quays. And that would have ripped the heart out of the centre of, of, of Dublin. So what we do need to do is uh, turn back to what are our more natural forms of movement, walking and cycling and public transport. You, you made a point, cities are kind of linear and people cross roads and angles. I, I like that very much because of course that's what one does to kind of save, yeah. you know, when one's walking or when one's cycling, one's always conscious about saving steps, saving pedal. And, and it's true, one doesn't want to cross the road in a straight way, but, but you're forced to. You're, you're forced to. it would be to. much better if, if the pedestrian crossings yeah. were. Kind of uh, so these are called scramble crossings. Um, uh, a great place, or an example of where one is needed, is out here at the junction of Pier Street um, and Westland Row. Uh, to cross the street, you have to walk across four different roads if you walk out the back of, of, of the science gallery here. Uh, and it's as if people on foot don't matter. Um, mobility for the car is the thing that matters and to my way of thinking we really need to be thinking about how to get the cars out and make uh, our streets alive with people rather than with traffic. But I'm curious how, how you personally build walking into, into your life. I mean, how do you, you know, you're, you're advocating that, that we walk a lot in the course of a normal day. How, how do you do that in practice? So in practice, uh, what I usually do is uh, I get out at uh, Grand Canal Dock and walk from there. So you to get Trinity. out of the, the dark like, uh, early, the, the early. You, you, yeah. you get out one stop early. Early, and yeah. And it's then, quite a long uh, walk, actually. Yep. Uh, I try and get out of Glenageary Station to walk to my house in Dalkey. Uh, so about and 
two miles, is it? So you're, you're it's about a mile and a half. Mile and a half. Yeah. So you're adding a mile and a half yeah. to your... Yeah, and then yeah. I typically, almost every night, go out for a walk around uh, Dawkey or Killiney Hill. Um, so I have a friend who has a, a dog. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, we, we go out together yeah, yeah. usually three or four nights a week. And... Uh, uh, I typically don't walk on a Friday night because it's tiring and <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, and then I listen to podcasts uh, or whatever uh, the rest of the time. And then when I'm walk or when I'm writing, um, I typically walk and dictate. Uh, so I, I get walking in that way. And then every opportunity there is to walk. So you walk I take and you it. dictate. Do you um, do you um, do you mind me asking? I'm really curious about kind of practical things like this. Do you have a an iPhone and a kind of uh, microphone kind of hanging in front of you and you just talk into the iPhone and it's recording I or carry you one of these you carry an old-fashioned dictaphone digital dictaphone 1990s like a no no that, about that no, but I mean they're, they're it's about three years it's, old it's, it's, <laughs> but it's a well-established technology nothing, nothing and it too. works really well yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so what I do uh, when I'm writing for example that book um, is uh, I, I set out the the kind of chapter plan which is evolves it's not necessarily the one that will work um, I read through the relevant papers, usually at my kitchen table, because uh, it's a better place to work than, than in my office, curiously, when you're trying to <laughs> do this mm. kind of thing. I, I write out bullet points. I get a bulldog clip, <laughs> put them all together on sheets of A4, and then I go for a walk, and I, I dictate through the bullet points. And I end up dictating much more than I've made bullet points for, and I usually will dictate for maybe an hour to an hour and a half. And, and, and I'm asking this because, you know, I don't want to flatter you or anything, but you are a formidably, uh, you know, you have a, a prodigious output of both academic papers. I think it's fair to say you've done 140 academic papers. So, you know, that's very high number by, by normal standards. And yet you're also finding the time to teach and, and produce yeah. really interesting books. So don't watch television. That's one trick. Is, is the but, but serious I'm, trick. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I'm curious... Do you um, do you hand the tapes over to someone to transcribe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. you're, you're, you're yeah. really kind of... Really focusing on the content, yeah. but I, I, and I, the oxygen from curiously, the curiously, I, I don't yeah. write papers like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's a different, different thing. Yeah, isn't so it? I, yeah, I typically yeah, write book. papers again from bullet points, but yeah. I do that at the uh, onto the computer. Uh, onto the yeah. computer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that's how I. But that's I why these are popular. Why these are easy to understand? Yeah. because yeah, they're, they're a man talking to himself. <laughs> yeah, now like what I say to myself is terrible. You know, you end up with this long big lumps of text, uh, I, I overuse certain words, certain expressions just keep coming out. Uh, but the point is you end up with a couple of thousand words which you can then edit back. And the writing is actually in, in emerges from rewriting. You've got to have something to work with. Text, yeah. Um, yeah. And the first draft is terrible, always. It's, it's, uh, it's horrible. <laughs> so, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> you're used to that. Um, yeah, I'm used good to that. Come out the other <laughs> yeah. So the process works for you. Yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, and it's also, uh, as, as, as I think you say in your book, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, you're not the first uh, author to, to do that. Charles Dickens did a lot of walking. Oh, yeah. No, you see novel after novel after novel. There's loads, loads of... Henry uh, James yeah. uh, famously dictated. He stopped writing about halfway through his career and uh, dictated. And uh, the, the analysts say that you can't tell the difference. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not because I haven't read enough. James to know one way or the other. But walking has played but walking, a big role yeah. in, in Darwin, like walking yeah. a lot. Oh, God, yeah. yes. And backgammon, yeah. which yeah. is another great yeah. way of this relaxing. But uh, <laughs> walking's probably the better yeah. way of... Yeah, well, he had the path at, at Down House mm. and he used to walk in that circuit. Um, uh, Manuel Kant um, in Königsberg uh, would walk for uh, at three o'clock every day and then come back and write. Um, 
uh, Bertrand Russell, before he wrote, would uh, spend an hour walking to organise his thoughts, mm. and then he would write then flawless then, yeah. prose, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> I'm not capable of doing. Well, we can't all be geniuses. Yeah. And, and, and finally, just on the walking thing, I mean, you know, clearly urban walking is, 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 is what you like best, but I wonder, uh, for those of our listeners who are from Dublin, you know, is, uh, is there a particular walk that you like in the countryside in, in, in and around Dublin? Is there a place, apart from Killiney Hill, which, which you mentioned, that you Yeah, and no, I've, walk again I've again. done it a numerous well, yeah. because I, I don't live very far from it, so I've done it numerous times. Um, the walk I've, I've liked the most over the years, uh, I think there are probably two of them. One is the Circuit of Glendalough uh, via the Spink, um, and the other is Jouse, uh, to, to walk to the, 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 cre- the peak of Jouse and, and do that circle circuit. Back. Circuit of Glenlock is around the, the, round the lakes, round the small yeah. one, and you're up on the yeah. kind of wooden thing. And then walk up, and then, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. go all the way up to the, the peak there, and then you can lengthen it or shorten it depending yeah. on, on, your, on your desire. But you can really do it in about three and a half hours, can't yeah. you? Yeah, which is it's a, a great walk. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So and then you've 40 minutes to get there and 40 minutes to get home. How did you become interested in your field? You know, what was the... The young Shane Amara, when did he realise that, that kind of studying how the brain works was going to be his yeah, kind so of life's work? That, that's fairly straightforward. Um, again, I, I'd always been interested in knowing about things. And I, I used, when I was in my early teens, I, I read a lot of, of all sorts of things. And my folks went for a holiday to the US. Uh, and my dad brought me back a, a bunch of books, including uh, a bunch of books by uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, and he had uh, one book on, which is called appropriately enough, Brocker's Brain. Uh, For those of the listeners who don't know, Carl Sagan was the kind of the Brian Cox of uh, yeah, the 1970s. Yeah, ab- uh, absolutely yeah. amazing. I died of, of pancreatic cancer in 1996. And I read this book, uh, I guess I was 14 or so, and uh, I just thought, this is astonishing. <laughs> you can, You can... You know, you can assert things, you can test them with evidence, and you can prove that people are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have a good argument. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, and I, I really date my interest in, in those kinds of things to, th- to that book. So, I, and I've gone back and reread it recently, and I, I still think it's amazing. It's, it's just a book what's of essays. The, what's the title of the book? Uh, Brocka's Brain. Brocka's Brain. And it's it, Brocka it is, is Paul Brocka, who is a French uh, neurologist who uh, I talk right. about in, in my torture book, actually. Yeah. He collected cases of soldiers who'd been shot in the head uh, in the 1870s uh, with musket balls. Uh, and typically they didn't die, or many of them didn't die. The wounds were depression wounds. And uh, he noticed that in a, a certain group, uh, uh, they had speech loss but they continued to understand what was said to them. And they all had a, a common wound, which was just above the left temple in, in right-handed soldiers. Um, and he uh, suggested that the place for motor programs for speech were coded in the brain was there. Okay. Um, and uh, his brain is now in a, uh, in a vat <laughs> in uh, the Musée de l'Homme in Paris. And uh, so Sagan, or Sagan talks about holding <laughs> his brain <laughs> uh, uh, in his hands. It, it, it seems, but maybe I'm wrong, that you were kind of fortuitous in a way because you developed this interest in the brain just a few years before uh, computer imaging and so on made it 
kind of triggered a revolution in, yeah. in, in our I, understanding I, I, of the brain. Is that and I was fair to say? Yeah, that, were, you know, yeah. I was lucky sitting in, on a rocket in all yeah. sorts of ways. You yeah. know, I, I did my PhD uh, in the 90s during the uh, decade of what uh, was called the decade of the brain. What did you study initially? What was uh, I did psychology, psychology first, uh, did with a, a very strong interest in biological psychology, right. and then uh, I uh, did a PhD in Oxford, uh, doing a kind of uh, research that just happened to suit me. Uh, the, the Oxford Psychology Department was very, very strong on brain science then and still is. Uh, so it was a great time to be there and I learned all sorts of things that <laughs> I wouldn't have done otherwise. But this is incredible. It's really one book that your parents bring back from the holidays. It kind of yeah, well, like I'm, this part, I'm, I'm, you know. I'm retrofitting the history. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of fascinating, but uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So that, that's kind of how, how now, you know, your, your, your uh, uh, you know, why torture doesn't work. That came out about, what, four years ago? Was it? Yeah, yeah, 2015. And uh, it's obviously a provocative title uh, in, a, in a difficult time. And I suppose uh, a, a title like that is particularly interesting because it wasn't long after waterboarding became a kind of a term that everybody knows and so on. What what inspired you to write that book? Yeah, so again, like, you know, I think the best ideas come out of interactions. In this case, the idea was out of an interaction with a newspaper article. Um, uh, a number of years before I wrote that book, uh, uh, Obama had been elected as president of the US and he had released the, uh, the torture memos, uh, as they became known. And Peter Murtaugh, who was the... Uh, security correspondent for the Irish Times had a very long piece in the Saturday edition on the, the torture memos. And as I was reading them, uh, I was reading through what they were doing, uh, things like uh, sleep deprivation, uh, uh, putting people into stressor positions, uh, food deprivation, uh, all of these kinds of things. And the thought really forcefully struck me that what they were doing was the kind of thing that you want to do if you want to induce uh, a, a state of uh, long-term major depressive disorder in, in somebody or a state of, of anxiety. Um, in essence, what they were doing was challenging the brain with uh, uh, the imposition of, of severe stressor states. And everything we know from psychology and from neuroscience says that this is a bad idea if you want to get uh, true memories uh, from the individual. Um, so I, I, I wrote a paper. So you're uh, destroying the witness. Uh, you, well, you're destroying the fabric of memory yeah. in the brain, um, and it's well, the ability of the witness. Uh, to, 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 yeah, to give exactly. Witness. Yeah. So I, I wrote a paper on this, which appeared in in late 2009 in Trends in Cognitive Science, and I, I got quite a lot of pushback. I got some very unpleasant uh, emails um, and other things, which obviously look, people send stupid emails. There's nothing you can do about it. Was that pushback uh, from people working within the kind of security? No, no. The, no. the CIA did put out a statement. <laughs> <laughs> did they, <really? laughs> they did, yeah. They, I, they put out a press release <laughs> saying very carefully that the um, techniques that had been used were authorized under the law applicable at the time. Um, and that formally is true. But the, the uh, memos on which they were based were formally rescinded. So they no longer had the force of law. Um, but anyway, it was highly amusing to, to me to find my name in a CIA <laughs> press release. Um, but uh, I, I was then invited a couple of years later to write another paper uh, on this topic. And I realised writing that paper that nobody had put the literature together. Um, 
so uh, I thought I have to do this because nobody else is doing it. Um, so that's where that book came from. Um, and it was a bit of a labour of love, I have to be honest, and a strange topic to be in love with. Yeah. Um, but it, I think very, very consequential. Um, I ended up giving um, evidence to UN committees. Uh, I've done that, I think I did that twice. Uh, I was at a, a symposium in Geneva just before Christmas, uh, again, on the, on the same topic. Um, and uh, the book itself has had really quite an effect. I, I know, for example, that uh, uh, the lawyers in Guantanamo Bay rely on it because I've had many emails from them asking for uh, points of, of uh, clarification. It's a fantastic example, isn't it, of how uh, abstract research yeah, can, can have really have really an, a yeah. tangible effect. Uh, and it's also, I, I got to write a paragraph in the relevant UN document on investigative interviewing, which was adopted by the General Assembly, uh, I think in 2017. So this is the, the document that's now used uh, when the uh, relevant human rights committees come to do country inspections. I suppose uh, uh, somebody who disagreed with you might ask, if torture is so ineffective, how does one explain its kind of popularity through the ages? I mean, people have been torturing one another since... Yeah, yeah, since with good reasons. Uh, and and so people have been yeah. doing it for very, yeah, very specific yeah. reasons. It's, it's, it's absolutely clear from the historic record that nobody has ever believed in the past. You have to put the whole Hollywood Jack Bauer thing out of your head. Nobody has ever believed it's a, a device for eliciting the truth. Um, the the, the uh, uh, Cheka and the NKVD in Russia didn't believe this. Uh, Lavrenti Beria, who was head of the NKVD and a monster in human mm. form, uh, soon after Stalin's death, said that you can get people to say anything you want, but it will never be the truth. Um, and uh, what has typically been the case is uh, where legal systems so it's a are way to extract confessions, confessions exactly, than, yep. yeah, and to get people to give up scientific points of view. So Galileo famously was threatened uh, with the strumenti di, tur di tortura uh, to give up the heliocentric hypothesis. It's a really effective means for spreading terror in a population and we, we see this at the moment when people are tortured and dumped back onto the street. Mm. Um, but for uh, what I call veridical human information gathering, in other words getting what people believe to be the truth from them. It's about the worst possible method you can think of. Um, and modern so it's, methods. It's good if you're a dictator because it discourages oh yeah, people from yeah, resistance yeah. and all yeah, that kind poor of thing. And, and, but it's yeah, it's yeah, but it's um, not good if no. you actually want to find out. But if what, you're a dictator, you don't yeah. care about the truth. Um, well, no, you care about fear. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I suppose, why it's so, so prevalent. It was, um, it's an interesting book because it's not an obvious topic for a bestseller is the wrong word, but a book that sold very well in many countries. Um, were you surprised it's kind of, you said earlier on it was a labour of love, were you surprised it's commercial success? Um, or yeah, did you know that this is actually something people were very interested I, I, in, just hadn't been written about too much? I, I think, I didn't know ahead of time what the reception was going to be, um, but I, 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 I think for a very long time the topic of torture had been owned uh, by philosophers, uh, and there's a vast philosophical literature on torture. It had owned by uh, legal theorists, uh, and it's, it's been owned by medics uh, at the treatment end, and it's been owned by politicians. But nobody had ever gone and said, well, let's take the utilitarian argument seriously, uh, and let's see what the literature says. Does sleep depriving somebody for 11 days 
does that allow you to get more easy access to what they know, or does, does it damage the fabric of what they know? And the literature is very, very clear that uh, uh, keeping people up for 11 days is a really good way to make them psychotic. It's a really good way to make them have hallucinations. It's a really good way to kill them uh, because wound healing, for example, proceeds more slowly if you're sleep deprived. All of those kinds of things. And if you want to cause disordered cognition, uh, sleep deprivation is, is really fabulous. Um, and I, I mentioned, yeah, so I've mentioned the NKVD, exactly. <laughs> you, you know from short episodes. Uh, when they wanted people to sign a confession, um, uh, they would seat you on a, on a, a three-legged chair uh, with your head a couple of centimetres from the wall, and every time your head fell forward, you were hit across the head. So, just to waken you up, not enough to, to, to be an assault as, as, as we would commonly understand it. Um, and everybody who went through that process will tell you that you would sign anything in order to get sleep. And Solzhenitsyn uh, in the Gulag Archipelago describes it in, in great detail, and there are many other prisoners uh, who've described what the effect of it is like. Arthur Kessler in Darkness at Noon mm, describes it in Rubashov's character um, because it's a, it was a really effective, cheap, uh, and for the torturer, not an unpleasant way to torture somebody because all you have to do is just strike them occasionally to keep them awake or throw a bucket of water on them. You're not there doing other terrible things to them. Finally, let's turn to a slightly, slightly less grim, grim topic <laughs> to kind of finish up. Uh, a brain for business, a brain for life. How insights from behavioral and brain science can change business and business practice for the better. I mean, there's a, there's a theme emerging here, Shane, which is um, you want to no less change the world for the better. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite clear. So having abolished the abomination of torture and encouraged us all to be fit, you also want to kind of and it's fantastic because we really do have to take all this new knowledge that's kind of flowing out and try and apply it to, 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 to life. You know, what, what, what's your central thesis in this book, would you say? So, um, I, I kind of a, if I step back and just look at the three books for mm. a moment and then I'll, I'll tell you about the genesis of that book. Uh, what I'm trying to do is, is uh, there are lots of books out there on how the brain sees, how the brain hears, how the brain allows us to move around, those kinds of things. And what, I'm, what I've been trying to do is tell the story of how the brain works in the world. Um, so uh, to, to, to take an issue and, and focus what we know about it through the lens of the brain, uh, if that's not too mixed up a, a, a metaphor. Uh, so that actually is my second book. Uh, sorry, uh, I actually wrote, have written five books. <laughs> um, the very first book I never finished, it ended up being a horrible, long, awful manuscript that I never got the focus for. Um, and then that... And what was that about? Th that was about uh, the hippocampal formation and memory. Right, um, so kind of more yeah, yeah, and I, I never really got the focus uh, for that book in the way that I wanted to do, because what I was trying to do was something that was silly. I was, I was trying to review all the literature and present a new way of, of looking at, at how uh, memory and the brain uh, go together. And I, I just didn't have the... I didn't have the right focus, but I, I think you have to make uh, mistakes in mm. order to. And I then thought, okay, let's set that aside, and I'll. I think I should write a book on stress. Um, this is going back more than ten years, um, and uh, I started writing a book on on stress in the brain in the world, and I wrote a fair bit. I'd say maybe twenty thousand words or something, and it just wasn't going anywhere. 
but uh, sort of messages kept coming out of that book about uh, stress and business and uh, working life and things like that. So I started drafting a third book, which was this book, <laughs> um, and uh, I put it aside because <laughs> I didn't. So the, the beginning yeah. of your writing career is, is check it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really but encouraging. Yeah, no, but those, you, you know, yeah. you you, you, That's you the way have it goes. To, yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to make mistakes. Um, yeah. And uh, how one should write a book is not obvious. Mm. Uh, I think in the end, the only thing that matters is getting the book done. But uh, you know, nobody can come along and give you an injection and say, this is how you write a book, yeah. uh, and a book emerges. So that actually started out as quite a different book. Um, and I, I, I started out thinking about writing a taxonomy of, of information from neuroscience that might be useful to people in, in other domains. And uh, I ended up just putting it aside. And a friend of mine <laughs> uh, had written a book uh, on uh, brains and business and this kind of thing. And she put me in contact with the series editor for that book. And he gave me a ring and uh, we had a chat. And I thought, well, now I know how to write a book. <laughs> uh, I'll give it a go. So that, that's, that's what I did in that book. Um, and what I, I tried to do was basically put together a kind of a, a, a story about how uh, people in business should be thinking about important things like uh, what kind of b cognitive biases we have, how important sleep and rest are for productive living, all, the, all those kinds of things. So that, that's really what that book is about. So is it an argument for, for doing a bit less and being more effective? As yeah, and yeah. it's an argument for uh, getting rid of presenteeism. Uh, it's an argument for saying that if, if you've got a difficult business problem uh, or a difficult problem of any description, stop sitting at your keyboard, go out for a walk, think about something else and then come so back. So I, I think that is perhaps uh, uh, the lesson from this podcast, isn't it? Uh, don't torture people because it doesn't work. And more importantly, step up from your desk, walk around, think about issues. Uh, and if you want to write a book, I think the lesson is you need an editor. Because it seems like you've had a very productive kind of relationship. Yeah, with no, I've been, I've been very lucky been with, with yeah. the editors that I've had. Um, so the, the HUP book, the, the torture book, uh, my editor there was, was really superb. He gave me lots of great feedback. Um, and more recently, the, the walking book, the editorial effort there was really, really astonishing. Uh, I, I guess it went through three or four cycles of, of editorial review before they sent it to uh, somebody who did a textual review. And only then did it go to a copy editor <laughs> to turn it into a, into a book. So. Um, they, what they did was just take all the stodge out, um, force me to, because the book I wrote originally was more than 100,000 words, so they, they slimmed it down. <laughs> a more manageable one. A more 60, manageable, would yeah, it it's yeah. about 60 yeah. or 70, something like yeah. that. And it, it's a much better book, yeah. even though it really hurt to lose <laughs> all my wonderful prose. <laughs> well, there are very few books and very few people who can't lose about a third of their weight, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, Shane Amara, thank you very much for, for joining us on the Tom, Trinity College Dublin podcast. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. <laughs>